Thanks for coming back. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Richard Simon. Dr. Simon served on the faculty of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the university for 40 years before becoming an emeritus professor in 2021. While a pulmonary fellow in Colorado, Dr. Simon assisted in the care for what was then only a small number of adults with cystic fibrosis. This led to one of his major career focuses and contributions to the amazing progress in survival and well-being of people with CF. He serves on multiple committees for the CFF, including the Medical Advisory Council, the Data Safety Monitoring Board, the Clinical Research Executive Committee, and the Clinical Research Advisory Board. A warm welcome to Dr. Simon, who will present the challenges of aging for people with CF. Welcome, Dr. Simon. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Appreciate the introduction. Um, one of I, I've been asked to address the challenges of aging for people with cystic fibrosis. I'm going to be concentrating on the medical aspects of aging and CF. And this really isn't to decrease the importance of psychosocial challenges of aging, but I'm not an expert in this area and I'm very interested in these potential problems, but I will really leave the discussion of this topic to others. As far as disclosures, I have no disclosures to make. I do chair a number of data monitoring committees that oversee the safety and integrity of many clinical trials of new CF treatments, but nothing I'm discussing today will disclose any uh, confidential information. I'd like to put this in perspective by beginning with a case presentation. And this is an adult male with CF who was diagnosed at four months of age his uh, CFTR genotype is F508-DEL and G542X. So he has two severe mutations. Neither one of these would be able to produce much or any functional CFTR um, protein. His sweat chloride was appropriately elevated, 88 milliequivalents per liter. He has relatively minor pulmonary symptoms now. He does have a cough and sputum production. As would be expected from his genotype, he is pancreatic insufficient and he uses pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. But fortunately, his pulmonary function tests have been really quite good. In fact, for many years now, his FEV1 has been above 100%, it's 120% predicted now. He does carry two CF uh, pathogens, uh, MRSA and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And his nutritional status is good. His BMI is 25.4. So you might ask, why would I present a patient like this? This is typical of many of the patients with cystic fibrosis that we follow um, in our clinic and across the country. But I did pick this individual for a particular reason, and that can be shown on the next slide here. This individual now is 72 years old. He's married. He has a master of science degree in computer sciences. He owned a software country, which he's now sold, and he's retired. I present him to emphasize that aging with cystic fibrosis is not completely new to us. In fact, we have a moderate number of patients in our clinic which are in his age range. And this can be seen more globally by, by looking at data from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Patient Registry. 
These are data that was published in 2020, and it shows the age spectrum of people alive in the registry um, in the year 2020, and it shows the different ages here. I put these dash, this dashed line here to divide out the patients who are over the age of 50. And you can see that 6% of the people alive in 2020 were in fact at 50 years of age or older. And that gives us almost 1900 people with CF who uh, were in the registry in this year. So this is no small number. We know a lot about people as they age with cystic fibrosis. So why, what is the, what's changed now that makes aging with CF such a hot topic? In fact, these types of talks that I'm giving are showing up on many uh, conferences and a lot of people are writing about it. Well, you can obviously a hint of what's going on by looking at what's happening with survival statistics of people with CF. And you've all seen these data before. These are published by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation from data that's present in the CF Foundation registry. And it shows going back to um, 1989, the trend of survival that's gone up progressively. This median predicted survival in years, what this means is that for a given year, for example, in the years uh, you know, around between averaging um, 2016 to 2020, that if someone were born within this period of time and it was the same pattern of survival that occurred in 2020, they would be expected to live in this case to about 50 years of age. The CF Foundation has been expressing these data in overlapping five-year intervals. And the reason they went to that is because from year to year, it's not infrequent that these numbers jump around a little bit. And that's just because from the statistics of variability from year to year, and they wanted to smooth it out, particularly to not get people concerned if they saw some years where it actually dropped a little bit before it went up again. They wanted to make sure that people understood that this could be just a statistical variation. But during this time, I've actually been tracking the, the, the actual year, the median predicted survival for each reported year. And these are data that I have here from the 1989. You can see these are merging the dots together, but this is the trend which really reflects what you already saw. I went back and pulled out data from the literature to try to get the data all the way back to 1938 when the disease was first described as a distinct entity. And you can again see that everything is just smoothly going up here as far as median predicted survival. These are data as of 2015. And we look next here, um, at, I'm showing now up to 2019, and there was a jump that occurred here. The increase in survival, we're not really sure everything that was responsible for that. Certainly modulator therapy is beginning to kick in. Ivacaftor 2012, um, or Lumacaftor, Ivacaftor 2015, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor in 2018. And whether some of this jump and then persistence at the higher level, whether it's due to these, it's really uncertain there. But then, as you all know, when we go from 2019 to 2020, something momentous occurred. And that was a fact, the approval of Alexacaster, Tezacaster, Avacaster, um, brand name Tricafta. And this was in October of 2019. 
initially approved for people age 12 years of age and older, and now down to age six years of age and older. And it's for a large percentage of population of people with CF. As you all know, we've all been celebrating this. And the effects of this, and I believe it is probably due for sure to the effects of this, um, of, of this combination therapy, the effects on longevity were seen almost immediately. Because if you look at the mortality data that was collected from the CF Foundation patient registry, the mortality shows that that's been since 2000, excuse me, 1989, it's been gradually decreasing over time, as you can clearly see. But there was a very uh, pronounced decrease that occurred in the data that was reported in 2020, the first full year where Trikafta was approved. And so what was the effect on the median predicted survival? Well, this is really when you plot it rather than the average, the rolling average that the CF Foundation does, this was really a big jump when they reported the data for 2020. In fact, the median predicted survival was 59 years of age. And again, that means that someone based born in 2020, if the mortality pattern persisted as it did in 2020, half the people born in 2020 would live to age 59 years. Now, again, the CF Foundation has been averaging five years, but when you look at this 59 years of age and look at the confidence interval around it, I show you that in this slide, this means that the, you can be 95% certain that that median predicted survival was somewhere within this range, again, far above what it was running. So this really shows, and I think it's this sort of a result that's really stimulating the interest in one of the challenges to aging with cystic fibrosis. But before proceeding, I think it's important for us to really pause for a moment. And again, I want to remind all of us that not everyone has benefited from modulators. This has been repeated over and over again. It's either due to someone having no eligible mutations, drug intolerances, drug-drug interactions. And in some places in the world, it's not adequate access to this medication there. So it is important that we remember this. But there's also something else that we should remember for those who are not on modulators. First of all, non-modulator treatments work. And I again show you the picture of my patient age 72. He got through 69 years of life without modulators and he has normal pulmonary function and has mild pulmonary symptoms. And I also think we need to remember uh, for those who are not on modulators that there are all these research initiatives and we're hearing about them again during um, this meeting but there's a lot of investigations on what they're calling symptomatic treatments, treating infection, better nutrition, anti-inflammatory drugs, et cetera. And of course, there's all the initiatives that the CFRI is sponsoring, and we're hearing about some of those during this meeting as well. There's a CF Foundation Path to a Cure, and Dr. McCray just reviewed important aspects of, of the progress that's being made there. And it's not just the CF community that's donating to this. NIH is having major support investigations 
both to symptomatic treatments and partnering in this path to a cure. And of course, pharmaceutical companies have had a major role in moving these to clinical trials. So as we regret that not everyone is eligible for modulators, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic for these individuals as well. So the topics I'm going to be including in today's discussion, when I'm addressing the challenges due to aging with CF, I'm sort of breaking them down into three different areas. One is what are the challenges due to well-known complications of cystic fibrosis? What are the challenges that are because of the adverse consequences from treatments that people with CF have been undergoing? And then finally, I'm gonna be talking about problems confronted by all people as they age and how this might imp imp impact people with cystic fibrosis. So I'm gonna with, start with the well-known consequences of uh, cystic fibrosis. And I've broken them down into four areas that I'm gonna cover. That is progression of lung disease, diabetes, bone disease, and cancer. Not going to spend a lot of time on the progression of lung disease because this obviously has been a focus of CF research and a lot of the progress that's been made with survival and well-being has to do with effective treatment, particularly the modulators. Um, we don't really know what the future rate of problems from lung disease will be with cystic fibrosis. We will be, you know, in the age of modulators, that will become clear. But the hope is that with all the other research that's going on in the continued modulators, that in fact, this progression will be slowed and that there's a challenge to people with cystic fibrosis. Hopefully this will be kept under control. Moving next to diabetes. Uh, these are looking at the data from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation patient registry showing the prevalence of diabetes um, that were reported to the registry. And you can see that as people age, the frequency or the prevalence of diabetes increases so that between, you know, after the age of 20 to 25, that the, the prevalence of diabetes is between about 20 and 40%. This downward trend here, unfortunately, is because as of now, people with CF-related diabetes don't live as long, so that more of the people who are older in this area don't have CF-related diabetes. So that's why it shows up with the prevalence going down here. But that, so this remains a significant problem. And what does this mean if you have CF-related diabetes as you age? Well, the complication of diabetes in people without cystic fibrosis are well known, and there's a lot of information about it. And we do know that the problems or the consequences of having regular diabetes, not CF-related diabetes, they increase with time. You can break the, um, the types of, of, of complications of diabetes um, into microvascular disease and macrovascular disease. Microvascular disease involves particularly the organs where there's small blood vessel damage leading to problems. And that the major ones occur in the eye, which is called retinopathy, the kidney, which is called nephropathy, and in nerves, particularly peripheral nerves, and that's called neuropathy. 
We know a lot about this in people without CF-related, uh, without diabetes, and excuse me, without cystic fibrosis. And we know that very good control of blood sugar really delays the onset of these. And we also know that good monitoring and directed therapy by ophthalmologists to the eyes of people with diabetes can greatly delay the impairment because blindness from diabetes is a major problem and it's from this microvascular disease, but rigid blood um, glucose control and appropriate treatment early on can really delay or prevent the worst complications from it. Um, we do know that um, because people with CF are living long enough with diabetes, that in fact, these problems do show up in CF. Exactly how it compares with people without CF, it's not sure, but there's no question that these microvascular complications do occur in people with CF, emphasizing the need for treatment and for detection and treatment. As far as the macrovascular disease, this is really the scourge of people who, um, without uh, cystic fibrosis. And it leads to major vessel disease that causes heart disease because of the coronary artery involvement, stroke because of involvement of the blood vessels going to the brain, and peripheral vascular disease, particularly arterial disease to the lower extremities, where you see people who actually lose limbs because of longstanding diabetes. Fortunately, it appears that people with cystic fibrosis are relatively protected from macro, macrovascular disease, but I'm gonna be talking about this as a challenge later um, in the talk. But right now it appears that the frequency of these is really quite low. So how do you minimize the long-term effects of CF-related diabetes? The emphasis really needs to be on early diagnosis and early treatment because that it definitely can reduce organ damage and regular diabetes. And there's every reason to believe that it should reduce it in CF-related diabetes as well, particularly the microvascular disease here. And how do we detect it? That screening and the screening that the, the gold standard has been the oral glucose tolerance test. However, there is a lot of debate about whether there are other tests that should supplant it or be used in conjunction with it. I won't go into that now. And then treatment, maintaining good glucose control reduces the microvascular complications, at least as shown in non-CFLA diabetes. So how do we know what to do with this? Well, fortunately, the CF community has put together guidelines for cystic fibrosis-related diabetes. The most recent iteration were published in 2010 and virtually all clinicians who um, deal with people who have diabetes should be very up to date on what the recommendations are on how to treat this. Um, there are new uh, advances that are coming out, particularly in the treatment, and those involve glucose monitoring and uh, glucose pumps and feedback and things like that. So I suspect that this is going to need to be updated, but the key is that, that each physician does not need to develop the wheel themselves is actually being done quite regularly. 
I next want to uh, look at the issues involved. Um, oh, I did want to mention what's known so far about the effect of highly effective modulator therapy on CFLA diabetes. And unfortunately, the clinical trials of these new modulators did not collect a lot of information as far as what it was doing to diabetes and new onset of diabetes. Um, the studies that are available so far indicate that probably these agents do affect uh, glucose control and improvement, and it's most evident in patients who have more mild glucose intolerance, long-standing diabetes, CFLA diabetes, it's less certain. But there's a lot of questions that remain regarding whether or not CFLA, uh, these highly effective modulator therapies will affect the onset of diabetes or, you know, and, and, and how this will affect the outcome. And will the increasing prevalence of obesity lessen the effects of these highly effective modulators? I'm going to be talking about this um, in, in just a few minutes as well. I'm going to just very briefly talk about cystic fibrosis-related bone disease. And I do this um, I, I am going to minimize my comments because Dr. Putnam is going to have a whole session devoted to this. And so I don't want to even start with more than very superficial covering this. But as you can see, again, from the Cystic Fibrosis uh, Foundation patient registry, the frequency or the prevalence of um, bone disease and cystic fibrosis increases quite continuously up into older age group. And this becomes more and more a problem because of the fractures that can occur in people who have well-established osteoporosis from this disease. Um, I grayed out all these other topics here, which I was going to cover, but then after seeing Dr. Putman's was going to be presenting it, I'm not going to be discussing that, but the emphasis to prevent the long-term problems are screening, prevention and treatment. And I'm really not gonna say more than that, but I am going to again show that there is a literature that gives uh, guidelines on how to approach bone health and disease in people with cystic fibrosis. But this most recent one is really quite out of date, um, having been published in 2005. And I suspect that work by Dr. Putman and her colleagues will be able to update this soon to make sure that everyone has the most frequent, the most uh, consistent uh, data in order how to approach this. We just heard a very involved and detailed discussion of cancer in, in, in people with cystic fibrosis. And in fact, I have just a few slides on this. I don't want to repeat it, but I did think some of this bears emphasis. And in fact, a few of the slides will have the same data that we heard uh, just a, a short time ago from Dr. Hashem. And what I'm showing you first here is looking at the full US population. And this is a data set that looks, it's a registry that uh, covers a number of patients around the country with, excuse me, uh, normal uh, people without CF around the country. And it's pooling data from 1990 over a 20 year period. And it's just showing the rate of bowel cancer. And I'm showing you what happens again with the 
population without cystic fibrosis. And you can see that the rate of bowel cancer begins to go up and becomes rather steeper as you age, presenting a challenge for aging for the whole population. And what we saw in the earlier presentation and what I'm showing you here, the data from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Registry over this same time period shows that this shows up earlier and is steeper. We just heard a lot of information about that. But I do want to put this into context because when you look at this data, it really looks quite frightening and it is important. But I wanted to again show some of the same data, but emphasize uh, different parts of it than what we heard previously. This is looking at the CF Foundation patient registry data. And again, from the same 20 year period and looked at the most uh, frequent ca cancers that were reported. And this is looking at the 41,000 people who are there have data in there and looking at the number of cancers, but then comparing it again with what would be expected from the full US population. So one of the points is that even the most common cancer 20, uh, colon cancer, there's 26 people back in this time period developed it out of 41,000. This is very important. If you happen to be one of them, there are now means to diagnose it early and, and to prevent it and treat it early. And that you see that it's much more than the expected 6.2. Some of these other cancers you can see, for example, the reports of melanoma in the CIA population was actually less than what was expected. This terminal ileum, the end of the small bowel, which we heard about, there were only five cases out of 41,000. It's much higher than what was expected, less than one. But so it is very important so that we do need to pay a lot of attention to it. But again, the frequency of these remains very low, but we have the tools to make it lower, um, particularly as patient age. And the other thing that was already emphasized is the frequency of some of these cancers, particularly colon cancer, really increased greatly after lung transplantation in people with CF. And so we need really to pay attention to this patient group, in addition to all people with CF, to try to avoid cancer and, and uh, particularly colon cancer. Um, we don't know why the, there's an increased frequency. I saw there were questions about that in the chat, chronic inflammation. Oh, it is known that CFTR is a cancer suppressing gene and those who um, don't have CFTR function then, one of the causes of the increased frequency of cancer in CF may in fact be due to loss of this cancer suppressing function. And we don't know, that was a great question in the chat, we do not know the effect of CFTR modulators on whether or not this will reduce and return back to baseline the frequency of cancers. One would hope so, but it's much too early to tell. The good news that was already emphasized is that we do have really good cancer screening guidelines and those went, uh, were covered in, in, in some detail. So I don't really want to do that now. The second major group of challenges for people with aging with CF are the residual adverse effects or consequences from previous treatments. And I just want to talk about one, and that is the effect of using IV antibiotics and particularly tobramycin 
and to some extent, amikacin. And this is really emphasizing the use of IV because we've known for a long time that tobramycin can reduce kidney function, can cause hearing impairment, and can also impair the sense of balance. And this is becoming, as people get older and have more and more courses of treatment for pulmonary exacerbations for Pseudomonas that requires, to, that is, that for which tobramycin is included in the regimen, that there's worry that this will have an accumulating effect. And there's a lot more emphasis on this to try to prevent it. We know that doing very close monitoring of tobramycin blood levels during IV treatment can in fact probably minimize or reduce some of these, but they're still likely to occur. The good news is a study being run by the SIA Foundation that will soon start that is going to assess the need for using tobramycin in treatment regimens to treat pulmonary exacerbation, people with pseudomonas infection. This is going to take several years to complete, but the hope is that we will know how important it is to include tobramycin in a regimen to treat pulmonary exacerbations and whether or not the benefits are worth the potential side effects, which we're becoming more and more uh, cognizant of. I want to move now to talking about the problems from aging that occur in all people with CF and what does this, all people in general, and what does this mean to people with cystic fibrosis? So I pulled data from the Centers for Disease Control, looking at the leading causes of death in the United States in 2020, and this is all people across. And you can see that heart disease and cancer lead the list here. COVID-19 in the year 2020, um, was a quite significant contribution to deaths. Fortunately, people with CF, you know, only I believe 28 deaths were reported so far over all the years of CF, uh, um, excuse me, COVID to the CF registry. And we've already talked about cancer and we've talked about diabetes, but I wanna spend a few minutes talking about um, heart disease in particular for CF. These are data looking at, again, the full population from the CDC showing the risk of death from heart disease. And these are data that I had most recently from 2016. And this is the rate of deaths in the general population per 100,000. And as you can see, it's quite unusual in people below the age of 45 to 50. But once you get into the 55 to 64 range, you can see it goes up and it goes up quite precipitously here. So what do we know about people with cystic fibrosis? Are they in fact going to be following the same curve or will it be different there? Well, at present, cardiovascular disease and cystic fibrosis is really being reported uncommonly. In fact, um, we, uh, our institution participated in a case report series from several institutions. And in fact, we had difficulty getting more than a handful of cases of people who had heart attacks or myocardial infarctions, um, you know, despite the fact we've got a number of people in their 50s, 60s, and some in their 70s there. So it appears there are some protective factors in cardiovascular disease. Obviously, just because our population as of now is younger, but that we're going to be seeing getting less and less the case as people age with cystic fibrosis. And some of the risk factors for 
cardiovascular disease in general, um, people with CF seem to be protected in part maybe because they have low blood cholesterol levels and because, the, because of nutritional problems of cystic fibrosis, there was a relatively low level of obesity. And we're gonna circle back to this in a minute. It's a little surprising that cardiovascular disease is this in common because when you look at known cardiovascular risk factors in the general population, People with CF, you can check off, unfortunately, a lot of boxes here. People with CF have been encouraged to eat a high-carbohydrate, high-fat diet to maintain their nutritional status. This is definitely a risk factor for cardiovascular disease in the general population. There's diabetes that we already talked about. Chronic inflammation is part and parcel of having cystic fibrosis. And also decreased exercise in the general population is a known risk factor. And those people with CF, particularly if they have moderate to advanced lung disease, have difficulty um, uh, keeping up a full exercise regimen, although many of them are able to do that. So as we're looking at these risk factors, I want to come back and emphasize this protective factor, low level of obesity, because this, in fact, may no longer be the case as we move forward. These are data from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Patient Registry. Again, data from 2020. And it looked at the percent of people whose weight with CF, whose weight was in the overweight range, that is BMI between 25 and less than 30. And a full almost 27% were in this mildly overweight category. And in fact, 10% at that time met the diagnosis of obesity which is a BMI of greater than 30 here. And what the registry also noted was that the rate has more than doubled in the past 20 years. And this is really before the effects of highly effective uh, modulator therapy. And it's because this modulator therapy, which improves the absorption of calories and improves weight, we also are beginning to see that that may be affecting, in fact, it's probably affecting the frequency of people with CF who are overweight or obese. These are data that was published that were published this year by Peterson and colleagues. And what they did is they looked at 134 patients that they were following and looked at what their weight spectrum was before treatment with highly effective modulators, particularly Alexacaptor, Tezacaptor, Ivacaptor, and then on the average one year later. And they broke it down into these different weight groups here. You can see that before treatment, about 65% of people with CF were within the normal range. There were about seven, eight percent that were underweight um, in their in, in the study that they did, and that there were about 15 or 16 percent overweight and fewer that were obese. But they're beginning to already see a trend within one year after introduction of Alexacaptor, Tezacaptor, Ivacaptor to their patient population, that the number who were in the underweight category went down. That's good. We were, that's one of the obvious beneficial effects of, of these uh, modulators. But that those in the normal rate decrease. And you can see those who are overweight were increasing and obesity may be just beginning to increase. So this is of concern and we're not sure the level of importance of this, but it is something we need to pay attention to. And in fact, when you look at the guidelines for nutrition, 
for children and adults with cystic fibrosis and particularly those with pancreatic insufficiency, these guidelines are relatively old now and clearly they're gonna to have to be revisited because as people's nutrition and absorption improves because of highly effective modulator therapy, we need to make sure that these old recommendations, although keeping weight up, now aren't uh, inducing obesity and some of the other problems, for example, with cholesterol or potentially heart disease as well. I'm also going to just briefly show because the same study looked at how these, this highly effective therapy affect blood pressure because blood pressure is another risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So this is showing that the people who started um, before starting by Trikafta, um, half of them had normal blood pressure with low but significant levels of higher. And you can see now that those with stage one and stage two hypertension increased uh, when they started taking um, highly effective therapy. Um, this is, uh, uh, alarms have been going up, and this is just a recent uh, communication that came out and was published in the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis very recently. And this is um, a, a warning that came out from Duckers and his, and his colleagues. What they did is they used a cardiovascular risk predictor, and it's QRISC-3 that they use for this. And they applied it to 207 people with cystic fibrosis who are seen in their clinic. And this is from a CF center in Wales. Now, this CF risk calculator um, was developed for people without, with the general population, people without um, cystic fibrosis. And it's looking at risk factors like age, sex, blood pressure, weight, cholesterol levels, present diabetes, and a number of other factors. And they use that to compare what, whether someone who has these factors, whether their chance of cardiovascular disease was higher. They plugged people, their patients, who had you know, what their characteristics in, and they saw that their patients with cystic fibrosis had a number of these risk factors, in fact, raising the cardiovascular risk prediction. Now, as I said before, it appears that people with CF are relatively protected, but the risk is, particularly with either with high effective therapy or new genetic therapies that we've heard about, whether or not the people that they're building up sets of risk factors when we correct CFTR, whether this will become more of a problem or not. Again, we've got good guidelines. These are looking at guidelines that have been de developed for the general population, but they come up with a whole series as far as weight control, blood pressure control, all sorts of things in order to be able to minimize the impact of, of, um, on heart disease there. So again, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So I'd like to make some general advice regarding the approach to aging with cystic fibrosis. Um, and obviously the benefits of us having um, achieved a much better survival now are obvious, but it also means that for everyone, particularly those in the younger population now, that we need to emphasize that they need to have education set up for fulfilling, uh, fulfilling types of employment, and also for making sure that they are saving for retirement to actually look ahead for long, to, to long age. One could go into this in much more detail at the present time, but I'm not going to be doing that now. 
think it's very important then that everyone that we utilize um, all the general and CF-specific preventive health measures, because now having had major treatments that can decrease the impact of CF lung disease, which is the main killer of people with CF, we need to make sure that these other problems don't get in the way and prevent people from living long and healthy lives. I probably should have emphasized this earlier because all of these preventive measures here, that is in the bailiwick of primary care providers. And it varies a lot between in, in the different CF programs, whether or not the primary CF physicians, how well versed they are. And in fact, these primary care providers have, have spent a lot of time making sure that they know all the proper screen tests that should be done, all the proper preventive measures and, and introduction of early treatments. So I think it's really very important that we, in fact, include primary care providers that we don't leave, uh, leave uh, the opportunity out because no one's paying attention to it. But to conclude, I'd like to share with you sort of an amusing prediction I made back 14 years ago. Um, the challenge, I, I was giving a talk together at one of the CF Foundation, the, the NACFCs in the plenary session, and I shared the session with Phil Farrell. We were looking at the extremes of age and how to maintain good health. Phil Farrell was looking at the effects of, you know, of newborn screening, but I was actually addressing aging uh, and how there was necessary to have improved adult care for it. And the challenge I was addressing is how to make sure we were engaging adult physicians in taking care of and working with people with CF as they got older. And in this talk, I listed eight strategies and included one that looked at in the more distant future. And what I did was sort of almost tongue in cheek. What I did is I used Photoshop to doctor one of the sessions that I predicted would be 10 years from this 2008. And so I said, this is a conference. Uh, this is a session that was gonna be 2018, and I predicted that there would be a short course at the NACFC, and that short course would be strengthening geriatric CF programs. How we were going to get geriatricians involved in taking care of the CF population. I was a little bit early, 10 years, but here we are 14 years later now, and this is becoming a real issue. It's a nice problem to have, but in fact, we are going to have to make sure that we look at the aging CF population to make sure they are taking full advantage of all of the things that geriatricians can provide. So I'd like to conclude with that. I want to thank you. I want to thank particularly the CFRI for, uh, for inviting me and for all the great work they're doing over the years. And I need to obviously thank people with CF, their families and their friends. Um, and now I guess I have some time for questions. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen here. Good, thank you. Dr. Simon, thank you for such an excellent presentation. You touched upon so much and I'm only a little bit relieved that we have at least people who are addressing other things in greater depth because there's so much to talk about in every single area you've mentioned. And as predicted, there are many, many questions for you, which we hopefully will be able to fly through. Um, two people, one a parent of a younger child, one a person who's an adult 
uh, on Trikafta, wonders if the um, recommendations for a high fat, high calorie uh, diet will be changed. So for, for kids who are diagnosed today in light of the modulators. Yeah, I think the target is to make sure that um, everyone, children, adults are hitting the target weights that we know correlate with good outcomes. So those, those children who are having difficulty maintaining the weight, even in the face of modulators, I think probably the older recommendations may in fact hold up in that we need to make sure we bring them up and whatever is needed to do to get there, it will be important. But once someone's in that, major in that uh, uh, beneficial range, and particularly if they're going toward the higher end of it, I think that very, very likely that we're going to be plugging in healthy diets for that we would think of healthy for the general population and move that earlier and earlier. And it would be driven particularly about whether or not nutritional uh, targets are being hit by the individual. Thank you. Uh, somebody asked, are hormonal changes in women being studied? So yeah, um, there is a very active study being done on women with pregnancy, pregnancy outcome and lactation. And that's the Mayflower study that's up and running to try to get a lot of these uh, data. Um, I haven't reviewed that recently, but we do know that clearly the rate of pregnancy of women with CF has gone way up, you know, from what the mid 200s up to 600, I believe. I don't quote me exactly, just with the institution of tri uh, Trikafta. And so, in order to have um, have a good chance of being able to conceive and bring a child to um, to start a pregnancy, the hormonal milieu really needs to be better, and it appears that's the case. So this is a very indirect way of saying that it's probably having beneficial effects, but I don't, I'm not a, I, I don't have enough knowledge to go beyond that. I do know there's a group, Seafresh, that has done a lot of great programs, including on menopause and CF and topics we never thought we'd be, you know, focused <laughs> yes. on. It's very exciting to talk about menopause. <laughs> Let's see, Willem asks, what about aging with CF post-transplant? I'm 62. Yeah, so, um, so the um, transplantation obviously addresses the lung disease of cystic fibrosis, but it doesn't the other manifestations of it, particularly like diabetes. Um, I think that's probably the major one. And so um, I think probably the improved survival we're looking for in transplantation is going to be heavily driven by being able to take care of the complications post-transplant, like that is the um, clad and other lung problems that occur there and, and preventing infection and the side effects of the treatment. So I think that probably will be the main driver, but I would like to think that the same progress that's been made in the treatment of lung disease in the native lungs that we're going to see with all the effort that's being put in that will extend the lung survival of people post-transplant and all the things that I talked about, the non-pulmonary complications will become more and more important. Thank you. 
Uh, it seems that a lot of, quote, old age problems seem to hit us before they affect non-CF people. Are there some old age issues that affect us less or impact us less uh, than the non-CF population? Yeah, well, as of now, as I said, it's probably the cardiovascular disease. Um, assuming that all the concerns that I have about weight and the effects. So, so I think that that is major because when you looked at the data from the Centers for Disease Control, um, heart disease, cardiovascular disease at the top of the list. So I think there probably is benefits. The other thing is that people with CF, in order to get to, um, you know, to, to do well, are they're, they're accustomed to being able to manage very complicated um, uh, regimens. And that as you age and their complications from non-CF related things become there, I think probably getting medications and, and being able to adhere to those for blood pressure, potentially cholesterol, if that becomes an issue. So I think all those habits of people with CF are gonna come back to pay them back uh, as they get older. Uh, yep. I'm 59. Um, CF-related liver disease is a major issue for me. Can you speak to the impact of CF on adults regarding liver disease? Yeah, I mean, it used to be said that most of the problems with liver disease really had their course in childhood, adolescence, and very early adult. But now that we have more sophisticated ways of measuring it and better ways to track it, there are some people that have seemed to have escaped major liver problems during childhood, adolescence, and who show up with it later. It's still small in numbers. Um, we don't have good screening tests, although there are some that are being developed that look like they may be promising. And a big unknown is whether a highly effective modulator therapy is going to influence that. Uh, there are studies going on. We don't have that data. Um, if I were putting a nickel down to bet on it, I would think that highly effective modulator therapy would slow the progression or maybe prevent it if it started early enough. But that's, that's a prediction. It's not based on any data. But I think that as people age, it may become more of an issue. But fortunately, when we look at our population that now, as I said, 6% are over the age of 50, that's, you know, 1800, uh, liver disease has not been a major issue for them. And I hope it doesn't become one. Is the rate of melanoma so high due to lung transplantations? I know many people who have had a lung transplant and end up with melanoma. You know, I think that certainly squamous cell carcinoma, and I'm, now I'm a little bit thin ice, so it's not post-transplant, it's not my major area, but I know that squamous cell carcinoma and to some extent basal cell carcinomas do go up post-transplant, probably because of the immunosuppression that's occurring. I must admit, I'm not up to date on the melanoma data with it as well. Um, so uh, again, it's probably the immunosuppression that um, is preventing people from detecting these early cancer cells and getting rid of them that our immune status is pretty good at. And that's why after transplant with immunosuppression, the rate goes up. But I can't address melanoma specifically, sorry. Do women with CF tend to hit menopause earlier, later, or at a similar age as the general population? Oh, um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, clearly, 
prior to highly effective therapy with people who were underweight and who um, had significant lung disease that often there was problems with normal menstrual cycles and people I think would certainly have a lot of anovulatory cycles and not menstruate normally, but whether going through full um, menopause with lower um, estrogen levels in general, I don't know the answer to that, I'm sorry. So we've now gone over by a minute, but if you're willing to hang in for like two or three more minutes and the people watching, because uh, we have a break afterwards, um, I'm grateful to you. Uh, there are just a couple more questions. Um, I feel like a lot of emphasis has been on calorie intake and not on nutrient intake. Can you comment on that? You know, the, you know back in the days when, uh, you know, it started before really high quality pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, that the goal was you got calories in no matter how you did it. And the most efficient ways to get calories in is by fat and certainly carbohydrate in any other form. And frequently it was tolerated by the highly refined sugars, you know, that that was anything you could do to, to, to get in. And so that, that was sort of the, the mantra. Um, I think that, again, as we sort of alluded to, that moving away from that and those who, in fact, can get calories in and you know, don't have to have a huge number because of all the malabsorption that's going on, that, in fact, it's going to be very important that we move away just like a healthy diet is for everyone else. And so we are going to have to get, get away from the high fat, high carbohydrate, particularly refined um, carbohydrates. Um, but again, I don't want to have that done prematurely and have people who are very low weight and miss the opportunity to, because we know that getting into normal weight improves survival in CF. With Trikafta, and we're seeing the weight gain because of this incredible new absorption of nutrients, um, for many adults with CF who are on, have other health conditions as adults and take other medications, should they be monitoring the levels of the other medications that they take post-Trikafta because it could shift absorption levels? So, so that, that, so the answer is to most medications that the trikafta doesn't really affect absorption and those that do are usually well known and in the um, that they're actually in the package insert and that all of our alerts when we prescribe it bring out those facts. So I didn't talk, you know, there are issues with statins that are used for high cholesterol in people that um, Trikafta does affect that and, and that's certainly known. But, um, but I, I think that much of it's going to be known, but there was just a report of a single patient that had been needing a really high level of vitamin D replacement and stayed on that high level of vitamin D replacement and then started Trikafta. And then it actually went from having a barely acceptable level to a toxic level. So, so I think that some things that the answer is going to be yes. So anything that depends on fat absorption, now with a better absorption with Trikafta, it probably is 
uh, worth having people take a look at whether or not those very high doses are going to be needed. I shouldn't use a single case report to change our practice in general, but I think that monitoring, uh, particularly absorption of medications that are involved, that, that do need fat absorption in order to um, have their effect, I think it will be important to pay attention to those. But we don't have an exhaustive list of that other than the known drug-drug interactions that are in all, all the package inserts for these. So clearly communicate everything you're on with your physician so that can be clear. Because it is interesting with COVID and Paxlovid that there's a whole protocol to go off of Trikafta, right, during Paxlovid. So that's what triggered that thought. Okay, this is the last question. And okay. one left, I can't leave that one person hanging. So, <laughs> so thank you for staying here. Um, the question, just clarification, did you suggest there's a direct link between prediabetes and microvascular issues? I'm 67 with CF and I'm battling macular degeneration in the left eye. Could you clarify this, please? Yes, so um, I believe the macular degeneration is not one of the prime microvascular abnormalities that occurred with um, with diabetes, you should discuss that with your ophthalmologist, which I clearly am not. But I think that that is, a, in general, a separate issue, unless the macular problems you have are thought to be CF-related. Um, we don't have a clear, you know, the we, we don't have clean data yet to tell whether or not the eye disease with um, if whether it's accelerated when you have very mild CFLA diabetes, clearly people who have type two diabetes um, and, and relatively mild, they do have retinal problems from their diabetes. It's, well, there's just not enough experience, at least I'm not aware of it anyway. With that, thank you so much for staying with us longer to answer all these questions. Thank you for a phenomenal presentation and for all you have done for decades to improve the lives of people with CF. So thank you very much, Dr. Simon. And thank you to CFRI.